Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Billions of devices may be already patched, but they were vulnerable to a Wi-Fi vulnerability that allows nearby attackers to decrypt sensitive data sent over the air, researchers said on Wednesday at the RSA conference. Now, this is in relation to a new vulnerability that exists in Wi-Fi chips that were made by Cypress Semiconductor and Broadcom, the latter whose uh, Wi-Fi chips were later acquired by Cypress in 2016. Um, So the affected devices include every device imaginable, iPads, Macs, Amazon Echoes, Kindles, Android devices, Raspberry Pis. If there is a device out there that had a embedded chip, there's chances are it could have been made with one of these uh, one of these chips. And they have a published list, uh, but there's I mean, just lots of them. Uh, The security company discovered the vulnerability. They said that. The flaw primarily affects um, the full Mac WLAN chips, which are used in billions of devices. Uh, they're naming the vulnerability KROOK, Crook, and it is tracked uh, via CVE 2019-15126. So they have patches that are available, but like patching usually goes with stuff, the user has to apply the patch. And the company has to have the resources lined up for the user to apply the patch. And then the user has to be aware of that. And that's easy enough to do when you start talking about Mac OS or when you're talking about iPads or when you're talking about iPhones or any of the Android devices. It, well, actually begins to get difficult when you start talking about Android devices. But it gets even more complicated when you start talking about third-party Chinese stuff that's out there that was that's made as a one-off kind of a thing and there really isn't a whole lot of time put in or effort or resources or server infrastructure put up around maintaining these devices that gets more complicated when you start looking at routers and how many routers are out there that people put in their home and they don't even log into them at least with even the cheapest most crappy android phone on the world At least there is an option for a push notification to pop an update up and say, hey, do you want to update the device? Hey, do you want to update the device? Hey, I just won't go away until you update me. You can do that on an Android device. How do you do that on a router? The only thing you could do is, I suppose, inject something on a a web page that would redirect to the router's login page and force you to log in or something like that. But then again, how many customers do we come across on a weekly basis that don't even know the login to the router? And if they do know the login, it's probably the, the default one that they have written down on the thing. And so this, and and as 2Bit points out in the chat room, the user also has to be pretty confident that the patch isn't going to break the device, which is something that I just struggled with here last week. Uh, we had a problem, as some of you may have noticed, with uh, some of our equipment last week and went into troubleshoot the problem. And the issue was we hadn't updated something in the studio. And of course, the reason I hadn't updated it was because I didn't want it to break right before a show. Um, 
didn't work out so well. But the idea is that you can create these patches. It doesn't necessarily mean people are going to apply them. Now, the attack surface is increased since an adversary is able to decrypt data that was transmitted by a vulnerable access point to a specific client. Um, and even if the other side of that device is not vulnerable, as long as one of the two parties was, you're able to, to decrypt that traffic. And so, of course, that would mean, let's say I have an access point and I keep my network up to date, but somebody brings a computer into, into my house and connects to the access point they have, and I give them the guest login, whatever. Now that traffic may be intercepted. And so Crook essentially exploits a weakness that occurs when a wireless device disassociates from a wireless access point. If either the end device or the access point is vulnerable, it will put any unset data into frames into a transmit buffer and then send them over the air. Rather than encrypt the data with the session key negotiated earlier during a normal connection, vulnerable devices use a key consisting of all zeros, a move that makes decryption trivial. Um, so disassociation is what we call when the you know the access point and the dev client device whatever it is they choose to talk together and they may choose to disconnect for one reason or another either somebody puts the uh turns the wi-fi off maybe somebody uh walks out of range of one access point this is something we deal with on a day-to-day -day in a hotel situation if you have access points um you're looking for about 20 db of, of signal separation when that when you and so we place access points so that any one user has between the two access points has about 20 db of, of signal separation that will usually force the client to disassociate from an access point and start looking for a stronger signal um, now that's a useful process when you're trying to get wi-fi inside of a, a a hotel built 100 years ago it's not so useful when these when these packets are using a key of comprised of all zeros and it allows packers hackers to um, decrypt that traffic with the four so and, and so essentially to so to elaborate I guess I should finish this up so hackers within range of a vulnerable client or device or access point can easily send a disassociation frame to trigger the vulnerability because these frames aren't authenticated and so as it's searching for uh, as it's searching say hands their new signal the hacker can insert malicious packets that basically say go ahead and disconnect from that access point you don't need him anymore uh, and, and that's how this attack is triggered. With a forced disassociation, vulnerable devices will typically transmit several kilobytes of data that's encrypted with the all zero session key. The hacker can then capture and decrypt that data. Now, the researcher told hackers can trigger multiple disassociation to further to chances of obtaining useful data. But I want to stop right here and point out we are talking about kilobytes of data. We're talking about kilobytes of data. We're not talking about that much. And that's, I mean, that the reason that's important, right, is because it affects how, what the real world ramifications are to this threat. There are a few things that minimize the real world threat. For one thing, the most sensitive communications in 2020 are already encrypted. And that's certainly true if you're listening to this program, right? We talk all the time about why it's important to have HTTPS enabled on sites, why it's important to use a VPN. Um... This this speaks directly to that. If you're at a coffee shop and the coffee shop doesn't update their access point or doesn't keep their, their firmware up to date and this firmware were to, you know, were to be susceptible to this particular attack, if you're doing all of your communications over a open VPN tunnel back into your home network, it doesn't matter, really. Um, they can get the wireless unencrypted packets 
of your encrypted VPN packets. Oh, well, the Internet had access to those. So uh, same thing with HTTPS. HTTPS is getting to the point where you can have it everywhere. Uh, I, I, I still get probably, I don't know, two, three emails a week from people asking, well, why haven't you gotten HTTPS on AskNoahShow.com? Because there's nothing there. There's, there it's, it's hosted. We don't pay for that hosting. We get it for free. And the only thing that's on there is a play button that, that plays an unencrypted stream of the, uh, of the, of the uh, show. And then we have links to all of the other stuff, which can't really do any. It's just essentially a big, gigantic list of links. Um, but, the, but aside from that, at some day, I fully anticipate that, the hosting provider that's providing us the hosting for that site absolutely at no charge to me is going to eventually get to a point where they're going to give out HTTPS for free. Why? Because it's becoming so prolific and open source is filling those niches and pairing people that have a need with a tool that fits the budget, something we're going to circle back to in a little bit. Hackers could go, go on to recover several kilobytes of data flowing over at any one time, but it's doubtful that attackers could time the disassociations in a way that would ensure passwords or other sensitive information would be captured. It's not just about the vulnerability existing. Um, they, you know, what can you actually do with the tool? Just because you know it's possible to decrypt kilobytes of data, the only useful way to use that vulnerability would be if you could intercept a username and a password. So it requires a certain amount of luck for this to work. And of course, the article goes on to say that you could theoretically continue to continue to trip the disassociations and get more and more data and you might get lucky. But here's, I guess, where I, what I take from this article. It's an interesting vulnerability. It's something interesting to discuss. It's not any major security nightmare because, again, the timing required, you have to be within physical range to begin with. These devices have to be susceptible, and even then you're only getting a couple of kilobytes if the data is unencrypted to begin with, which wouldn't be the practice we would suggest you use. So the real-world implications, not so much. However, here's what I take away from it. One, this is why keeping data really, truly air-gapped, if you really care about it, if something's super, super important to you, and you cannot afford for that data to get out onto the internet, it should be on an air-gapped machine. It should be on something that you can look at and say, this does not have a connection to the outside world. Because even if you had your network completely separated from the internet, and separate access points, and separate switches, and se separate everything... There still are some vulnerabilities and some attack surface. And certainly even an air gap machine has some attack surface. It's just drastically reduced. Then the more, I'll fully admit, the older I get, the more paranoid I get. What can I say? I'm getting to a point where if I can't look at the connection between point A and point B and see how, where my data is going, it starts to make me nervous. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Another reason, by the way, why you should use professional routers. If you have, you know, we talk sometimes about why, if, if it's beneficial really to purchase the PF senses and the Microtex of the world and the, and the, we'll go ahead and include Unify, if you don't mind some, some, some of their data collection practices, using those devices will almost certainly guarantee that you stay free from vulnerabilities like this because the code is out there to fix it. You just have to be willing and able to apply it. And Unify does a very good job of providing updates directly to their devices. Same with PFSense, same with Microtech. You can just log in, click on the update button, and you download the packages. The, the more I think about it and the, 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 the more I'm, I see these kinds of things come out, the more I start to say, you know what? It doesn't matter if you're a home user with four people on your network. You should be using a professional router. 
I just wish they'd make some that had slightly easier interfaces for people to get welcomed. I wish there was a dumb mode for PFSense. Somebody somebody should create that and email it in. That would be great. Again, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. If you'd like to make your voice heard, become a part of the program. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the show. Hey, this is a, a weird question that might, might be. Is I have the same app copied on, I know it's going to sound ridiculous, Straight wine installed okay. and play on Linux. And as best as I could tell, the play on Linux is configured exactly the same as the other one. But when I run it out of play on Linux, it crashes all the time. When I run it out of straight wine, which the installer installed and set up, runs perfectly. And I was wondering if you had any idea what play on Linux is doing goofy with its configs. Can, uh, sorry, can you, you'll, have to, uh, you'll have to enlighten me a little bit. I don't, I'm not familiar with plain Linux. What is plain Linux? Play on Linux. Play on Linux. Play on Linux. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Versus, versus, you know, how you set up regular, if you tell, the, just install Wine, I have the same app installed in just the Wine folder, and then the exact copy of it, in, as far as I know, set up in Play on Linux, and then try to set the Wines up identical, but Wine will crash every single time, and they... Whatever Ubuntu sets up for regular wine is working perfectly, and I was wondering what gives. Yeah, that's a man. Yeah, that's a great question. It sounds like that's something that would almost need to be a bug report, James, and and to say, hey, this is this is what's happening. But you know, this is what what I would take away from that is this is why it's beneficial to have multiple people and multiple eyes looking at the problem from different perspectives, right? That you know when. You, you find some people that create one project and they do a really good job and they really keep their eyes on the ball and then somebody else looks at it and says, I got a slightly different way to do that and then they give their approach and what you find is some people can some people can really nail these problems and they add value to, exi- to existing projects as they expand them and make them better. Um, so, I, yeah, I would... I would honestly, I would open a bug and say, "Hey, this is this is what's happening, and um, and and this is the experience, and this is what I'm having." Because I'm sure if a developer crawled in there and looked at the underlying code, somebody could figure out what it is. That's just not something I can do in a five minute uh, phone call over the air. Again, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you join the program. So, Facebook is doing something interesting. They are becoming a sponsor of OBS. Now, they have Facebook from their perspective, they just have a need for software. They have users that are on their platform. They make money when those users have any sort of exchange because it puts eyeballs on Facebook where they make money off of ads. And they want to extend that service to as many people as possible. And they don't really care about the features or how people interact with it. They just want people to do it. Now, I remember When Facebook Live first started off, you had to have the Facebook app installed on your smartphone. And I remember thinking about how problematic that was because if I was going to do anything live, I'd want to use a proper camera. I'd want to have a proper audio interface. I'd want to have a proper microphone. This is the way that I would choose to do something live. And I thought, why can't you just give me an RTMP uh, little thing that I can stream to? Well, didn't take very long before that took off. And now that has become the standard for sending content to various places. And you would need a piece of software that everybody can make tutorials on, that everybody can get their head wrapped around, that's easy enough to use, that's stable enough to use, that has enough features for everybody to to get done what they want to get done. And 
wouldn't you know it, an open source challenger rose to the occasion. It wasn't the Wirecasts of the world. It wasn't um, all of the other proprietary streaming software that exists out there, uh, even, to include even some really cool uh, things that are based, on, you know, on cool projects uh, that I can't remember the name of that suitcase streaming uh, device, te not, not uh, Telecaster, but um, all of those things could have been contenders and, and could have been what people landed on. And what happened was, I think the timing hit at a, in, a, in a very succinct way. I think that people's need and desire to create content landed roughly about the same time as ways to publish that content did. So as YouTube came out and Facebook started you know, providing live uh, services at the same time that these devices are coming out that have the capability of being able to plug into your computer and capture 1080p or 4k video very inexpensively and very easily. The Madwell is just a USB capture card, works natively without any drivers. These are all things that led to Facebook's success. And at the very core of that is an open source project that we use every single week on the show. It actually records the show and it's OBS, open broadcaster software. And Pro users like myself are willing to pay for features for tools that we use every single week. What you find a, where there's a problem is when you have a bunch of users that expect something for free and a developer, you expect them to develop a piece of software that really delivers a crystal clear, uh, perfect product with a perfect attention to detail and not very many bugs to the point that people can depend and rely on that software. And you want that developer to do it for next to no money. That's the recipe for disaster, and it's a recipe that we continually find ourselves in in open source. And the OBS team is figuring out how to turn this around, and people are responding. I am willing to pay to use OBS because it, I, my podcast fundamentally depends on this piece of software. And back when I was on last, we interviewed the project, and we, we literally asked them, how can we help? How can we give back? How can people help you? We love what you're doing. And I didn't get, I, I didn't feel like I came away from that interview with a great answer. Um, I was not aware of this contribution program, which apparently started about a year ago, but you better believe as soon as I found out about it, I signed up immediately. So whatever the, I don't remember what the, uh, Whenever the next release of, of OBS is, there's like a, a thing where you can see all of the people that are supporting the thing. You will see the Ask Noah show in there. And I'm proud that you'll see the Ask Noah show in there because we want to give back to the projects that make this show possible. And I think most people in the open source community get to a point at some point in their career where they look out and say, I am where I am because of the tools that have been given to me by open source professionals. I hit that moment when I was at Red Hat Summit last year and I was talking to the very people that make it possible for my nine-year-old son to run a Minecraft server in his bedroom because he thinks it's cool and the tools are available for him to do that and they don't cost anything because a lot of really nice people put a lot of really hard work in and were willing to give their code away. That shouldn't mean that they go unpaid. And so those of us that do make money off of open source and make money using open source have a responsibility to be good stewards of that community and give back. Facebook makes money unquestionably off of OBS. Facebook has profited almost probably more than any other platform, um, except, you know, maybe Twitch and uh, maybe they duke it out. But I think Facebook Live is, is where I see the vast majority of average people signing up to say, hey, I just want to share my life. And they're using OBS in a lot of places to do that. This goes to show you if there is a choice if there is a choice between an open source, well-done, polished project 
and a well-done polished proprietary project, most people will choose the FOSS alternative every single time. And that's not because of some sort of loyalistic, I have to worship at the altar of open source. It's not any of that. It's the fact that it's more convenient. You don't have any software keys. You don't have any activation. You don't have any mandatory versions to use. I have been using MakeMKV since MakeMKV was a thing that ran on Linux. I use it all the time. It's a great piece of software. I recommend it to other people. But the thing that keeps me from talking about it many times on the air is the fact that it isn't open source and there's an inconvenience factor that, fa that, that comes in there that I cannot get out of my mind and it bit me in the butt just, I think, a, 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 well, earlier this week. I went to rip an ISO on a machine in a pinch and couldn't use it. They updated the repo and so... The, uh, they hadn't updated the repo, they hadn't updated the snaps, and so I didn't have the ability to, to use the, the little free 30-day whatever the thing is. Now, I own two paid licenses of the program. I have one for my desktop downstairs and one for my laptop. I have a couple other licenses that are under other emails that I signed up for at one time or another for random machines, but of course I've lost track of those. But I know where my, my two licenses are, and I just pray every time that I reinstall my operating system that this time it's going to work. And so far it has, so good on them. When it doesn't, I guess I'll send an email and we'll see how many times I have to, uh, to buy this piece of software before I can continue to use it. It's not wrong that they do that. It's not immoral that they do that. I don't, I don't, I don't think any less of the software because they do that, but it is just inconvenient. And what you will find is most people are fairly lazy and most people have had it with software activations and license and, and entitlements and stuff. They just want to be able to use the stupid thing that they want to use. And open source enables that. And then for the people that are willing, like myself, to give back and say, thank you for what you do. You create a valuable product and I don't know where I would be without it. We're willing to give back. And now they have a place to do, OBS has a place to do that, and Facebook took advantage of it. They took advantage of it in a big way, and now Facebook becomes an entity that is going to fundamentally in, can empower uh, the OBS project to continue making great software. And I hope they up the, the, uh, the contribution limits at some point. Um, I, would, I would imagine that if their top tier was you know, $1,000 or $2,000, I would bet that they would probably have the, that, that Facebook would probably even, you know, would even up. And I, I don't know, maybe they have a special agreement with Facebook. Maybe it's not just through the Patreon that that's on their contribution page. But good on OBS for having a, an easy way for people to do this and good on Facebook for, for taking advantage of it. Again, we've got open phones this hour at 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at Show. Dot com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. You can also join us in our interactive mumble room or our interactive chat room at freenode.net pound Ask Noah Show. Intel SGX was announced back in 2014 and launched with the Skylake Micro uh, Architecture in 2015. It's one of the first hardware encryption technologies designed to protect areas of memory from unauthorized user up to and to include the system administrator themselves. SGX is a set of x86 instructions that allow a process to create an enclave within the memory, which is hardware encrypted. Data stored in the encrypted enclave is only decrypted with the CPU, and even then, it's only decrypted at the request of the instructions executed from within the enclave itself. This is intended to allow confidential high-stakes data processing to be safely possible on shared system, such as a cloud VM host. 
enabling enabling this kind of workload to move out of the owned and operated data centers and into massive scale public clouds allows for less expensive operation as well as the potential for better uptime scalability and even lower power consumptions the idea being here if you have something that you that some sort of calculation that you have to run that has vital importance to your business and if it were to be leaked it would be massively problematic you become concerned about sharing infrastructure with other people. You become concerned about having that server process run on a server that's shared with other people that rent from the same cloud provider. And so consequently, they keep them in their own data centers and under their own control. And that's, you know, if there's anything that we know about the IT industry, it's of course far more efficient when we share a a given resource and when there's very expensive resources and centrally located resources it's why cloud has become as popular ha as it has despite the disadvantages to the user but the downsides so so anyway so the intel has been has been working on this and the the upsides would be incredible um the downsides though are if you design an application to use sgx to protect its memory that application will only run on intel processors and the second problem is you have to specifically design your application around SGX. You can't just say, well, go ahead and use encryption, don't use encryption. Now, SGX enclaves are limited in size, so all enclaves on a system must fit into the enclave page cache, which is currently limited to 128 megabytes total. Not 100 megabytes per process, 100 megabytes total. And so you're never going to fit the entire operating system or even containers into a 100 megabyte box. So you're essentially telling the application developers, here's a special little place of RAM that's 128 megabytes, use it wisely because that's what you get. And so if you have something that has to be protected, store it here, but you can't store it anywhere else. And obviously that is, that's kind of a, a kick in the pants. Many common workloads could easily see a throughput decrease of 20 to 50% if executed inside of an SGX enclave. And so the performance degradation here plays a major factor. Um, in 2018, AMD proposed new technology to secure memory from unauthorized user called SME, or Secure Memory Encryption. Unlike Intel's SGX, SME would allow for any page in RAM to be encrypted and decrypted in hardware. Any page marked for encryption would also be encrypted with an uh, with a 128 AES key generated via a random number generator at reboot. These keys are only accessible to the CPU hardware itself and cannot be exposed to users including root or system administrator levels. SME, like SGX, requires some planning on the part of the developers. However, a stricter subset of SME called TSME, Transparent Secure Memory Encryption, would allow for the entirety of system RAM to be encrypted using SME. As entire system features, TSME is enabled or disabled in the system BIOS, or UEFI, and it requires no special planning on part of the application once enabled. Everything's encrypted. That, by far, seems like the better way to go. And AMD's approach in general seems like a better way to go. Now, here's, here's the part where I'm going to play Ryan for just a minute. When you have two actors, uh, well, you have three actors, right? You have NVIDIA, you have Intel, and you have AMD. Two companies are doing their own thing, are doing what's in their own best interest, and Intel is not having a great year. Intel has not been having a great past few years ever since, uh, uh, you know, the speculative analysis or speculative uh, vulnerabilities that have started to come out. 
at the same time that AMD is start and, and Ryzen is starting to really take off, Intel suffering a hit. And then you start looking at graphics cards. And at the same time that AMD is starting to get a rise and really starting to, to, to gain some traction, NVIDIA keeps screwing the pooch. And we have had... I, I, the, the difference for me directly when I went from an NVIDIA card in my daily driver to, a, to an AMD card was like night and day. I never had any major problems with NVIDIA. They had the driver as long as you installed it. The configuration utility went up. I could rearrange my monitors. Everything mostly worked. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I would have some weird thing some weird bar that would stick, some weird window that wouldn't move. And I think a lot of us who, who grew up using Linux and a lot of us who have been using Linux for 10 plus years, 15 plus years, just remember the time when Linux was just the oddball kid. I mean, it just did weird things and you were like, eh, well, <laughs> that's what I get for using Linux, you know? And we've just come to accept it. And it's not that it's any worse, I think, than Windows uh, or Mac OS. I think the, pro the, the weirdness, the quirks are just different and we've just come to kind of accept some of them. And so when I have a, a, a window lockup or a bar lockup, I just kind of attribute it to, well, I guess that's just an issue. That's just a bug, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the kind of person that can fix something like that. I wouldn't even know how to begin to debug it. So I will just accept that as part of the one of the challenges that I deal with in my day. And then I put an AMD card in my system, and then I put an AMD processor in my system. And my gosh, I've not only not had to reboot the thing, but it works flawlessly every single day. And I, day after day, I come down there and I sit down in my lab and I use it. And I think to myself, I walk out, I'm like. Man, there's another day I've just had no problems with this machine. It's just been fantastic. And it can only be so much time. It can only be so much time as, as, as Intel continues to have more and more issues. And they, they try to, they're trying to fix this. And they're trying to, to, to extol the virtues of SGX. And it's not getting them anywhere. It feels like they're playing catch-up. It really does. One eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. James, Idaho. Welcome back. Hey, Noah. Hey. Well, I have a, a, simple, a complicated, simple question. If you had um, a very limited budget, say two hundred bucks, to go out to a big box store and you wanted to build a, a little home nest or buy, I should say, buy a little home nest with which communicated well with Linux, but here's a twist. Your family member, too, has an iPhone, and they want to talk to it, too. Off the shelf, what would you get, and could you build it? Uh, why, and what would you do that way? What What was your price? What was your budget? Um, I would like, I only have a couple hundred dollars. I'd like to have two, if possible, don't care about design quality, two drives, you know, varying purposes. Um, but... To communicating to the Linux properly, and then the twist being on Apple to keep saying you gotta use Apple stuff for an iPhone. <laughs> I I'll be honest with you, James. I think you're gonna have a difficult time walking into Best Buy and walking out with a NAS solution for for two hundred bucks. I really do. Um, I for when you start getting to the three and four hundred dollars, if you can extend that budget a little bit, you could get yourself into like a Western Digital, uh, like a like a MyCloud. Um, I think those are well. Actually, I just looked them up on BestBuy.com. I guess they're I guess they're 150 bucks, 160 bucks. So okay, I was wrong. Um, but the you know the issue is essentially this is a hard drive with a network card in it and really nothing more. Uh, you're going to get some basic Samba shares out of it. 
Maybe you can get a basic NFS share out of it, um, but you're getting no redundancy, no backup, no utilities, none of that. Um, you know, for for two hundred bucks, if I was trying to spend two hundred dollars and trying to really get my my bang for my my buck, I would go to eBay and buy like a you know a gently used uh, Optiplex, older Optiplex, and uh, and and just flash that sucker with FreeNAS. Um, you're going to you know you can probably pick up a I would bet you could pick up an Optiplex on eBay for if you were if you're really pushing it, I bet you could get it for fifty bucks or less. Um, you know, some of the seven, well, that, six that part of the question, it was the DIY version of it. What would you do with the DIY? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the DIY. Cause it's, it's going to, it's, you're going to get so much more bang for your buck out of that. I, I just looked on eBay. You can get a Dell Octoplex 790 with an I five in it. Um, and eight gigabytes of Ram for, for $69. Uh, you, you get a, you get a $69, uh, you get a $69 Optiplex and you put uh, a couple of uh, Western Digital Reds in there, you'll if you if you got the one terabytes, you could you could stay under two hundred bucks, I think. Uh, and if you know, and, and what you'd get there is you'd get ZFS. You'll get the ability to do backup. You'll get the ability to do scripts. You'll get the ability to put in jails. Uh, you'll get the ability to operate in the same environment that you would if you wanted to grow the NAS later on down the road. Also. DeLuca in the chat room points out that the DS120, which is a Synology NAS, is 100 bucks. And there's actually, Synology is my go-to, like if I want one off the shelf, and I just need to pull something off the shelf, plug it in and have it work, uh, and it has to be cheap, Synology is what I go with. I like the fact that it uses, uh, or that you have the option of using uh, X4. Um, the other thing is, I think their interface is one of the best web interfaces out there. It practically feels like you're using a desktop and uh, and they're and they're cheap to boot. Um, one reason I would go with the the Optiplex and the FreeNAS solution over the Synology is that you're going to be able to get you know the the two drive Synology is going to be 169 dollars and that's diskless. If you the, the 790, you're going to be able to put uh, I, I would guess you'd probably be able to get four discs in there because they have two uh, two looks like they've got two five and a quarter inch bays um, that you could put two drives in and then you you probably at least have the the hard drive. So I'm guessing you get three or four drives in that machine. Um, that would set you up a lot better. That's the way I would go, James. And would that work well with the um, um, uh, Sysos iPhone? <laughs> yeah, so here's here's the situation with iPhones, right? You're going to have a difficult time any which way you swing it, t trying to get an iPhone. doesn't matter what you buy. You're going to have a difficult time getting an iPhone in general to try to communicate with something other than iCloud because that's just not what it's designed to do. But there are ways to do it, right? You could run NextCloud in a jail. You could install the NextCloud app on the iPhone, and you could start sending data that way. That's one way you could do it. Um if there is an option, and I, I'm, not, I'm not much of an iPhone user, but if there is an option to map drives or to you know map uh, media shares and stuff like that, if you're doing media, you could do Plex, and of course that's going to work on the iPhone. Um, but but yeah, I mean it doesn't matter. I mean even if you bought Apple solution, the the vast majority of iPhones are designed to speak directly to the cloud or to back up through iTunes on your computer. All right. So the iPhone is the biggest twist. Well, so here's the thing. DeLuca says in the chat room that the Synology app on the iPhone will let you back up pics. So, I mean, that will get you, you know, if you went the Synology route, you'd be able to you'd be able to use their app to back it up. All right. Uh, so I was asking, I wasn't 100% sure on, with the phone being in the mix, I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that ends up interesting to us. networking a lot. 
Yeah, 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 very, very cool. Well, I appreciate the call. I appreciate the call, James. I uh, good luck with your uh, with your NAS solution. I uh, I'm usually here's the other thing about uh, NASA's just in general or any technology you're going to put in your house. P- stick with something that you can dig into and that you can understand. Um, the last thing you want is your data on something that you don't understand. Again, open phones this hour eight fifty five four fifty NOAA. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email. Live at AskNoahShow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Lamori, a new name, same great Unity 8. Most readers probably know Unity as a 2D or 3D engine simulation platform, and many people who found Unity 8 made the same mistake. They constantly confuse Unity, the desktop, with Unity, the game engine, and that makes some sense because they're both spelled the same way and they look the same, and there's a lot of overlap in the tech coverage. Additionally, efforts have begun to package Lamari into Debian uh, and Fedora, and one sticking point for some of these efforts was the name Ubuntu in many of the dependencies. For example, Ubuntu UI Toolkit, Ubuntu Download Manager, Qt, Ubuntu, so on and so forth. Packagers warn that packages containing the name Ubuntu may not be accepted into their target distro. And so the team came together and said, listen, we need to do something about this. So what we're going to do is pick a new name for the Unity desktop. So if you used Ubuntu prior to 2017-ish, I think, uh, you were using the Unity desktop by default. If you used, if you, you were using the Ubuntu distro after 20, like late 2017, I think 1710 was the first one that came out with... Uh, or maybe it was 17.4, I don't know. Uh, it came out with the, with the GNOME as the default desktop uh environment there are people that got pretty tripped up my mother was one of those people she called me and said my bookmarks are in the wrong place i can't find my bookmarks i'm on firefox and i went it's weird i don't think firefox moved bookmarks around anytime recently but i'll come over and take a look and um went over there and and found out that she had inadvertently gone with an upgrade from uh the ubuntu uh, it would have been i guess 1604 lts to 1804 lts and got gnome as the default desktop and uh, so the first thing that crossed my mind was, wow, I'm really glad that the upgrade process is that smooth, that mom doesn't really have any issues other than she can't find the hamburger menu that moved around in Firefox. Uh, but that that is Unity, and, or was Unity, and I'll be honest with you, I really thought that Unity was one of the best desktop environments I ever used. And I... Maybe a KDE user now, and I probably will be a KDE user until the day that I die... You will have to pry it from my cold, dead hands. But the truth is, I would have never even tried KDE or switched off of Unity because I was that happy with it. Unity was one of those desktops that got all of the polish right. And and they constantly got ragged on because they weren't making sweeping changes. And oh, this is another one, basically the same as before, and basically the same as before. And you know, what? I like that. I like that everything was in the same place and everything just worked. I plugged it in. To this day, I still, even including my beloved KVE, have not plugged a bunch of monitors in and had them auto-configure and figure it out the way that Unity did. It was just pretty great. Although KDE is a close second and the only one I might add that figures out vertical monitors to the best of my ability. Um, this is great. This is fantastic. This desktop environment needs to stand out on its own. This is the right call to make a name change and to set uh, to set this desktop environment on its own. I hope I'm pro- pronouncing Lemur- I suppose it's Lemiri. We'll go with Lemiri. But if there's if somebody wants to tell me how to pronounce it correctly or call into the show, let me know. But I'm going to say Lemiri. They're going to change Unity 8 uh, to Lemiri 
Ubuntu UI Toolkit will become Lemiri UI Toolkit, and Ubuntu Download Manager will become the Lemiri Download Manager. And I tell you what, the I am going to run not walk to the nearest machine that I have and get Lemiri up and running, and here's why. I was happy to see that there were people that were going to continue the Unity project after Canonical, uh, not abandoned it, but just decided it was no longer their primary focus. I was concerned how long that effort might last and, and what they were really hoping to achieve out of that project. And the fact that they're renaming it, as is, 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 is dumb as this might sound, the fact that they're taking the time to rename it and really take ownership of the project really says to me that these are people that are passionate about this desktop environment and really want Lemiri to be all that it can be on its own two legs, not backed by Canonical, not as just the default desktop default desktop distribution uh, desktop environment. This is its own thing completely, and it can succeed in that light. And seeing that they're willing to put the effort in to do that uh, gives me a, a whole new profound way of looking at this and saying, hey... I really want to be a part of this, and I really want to. Uh, I really want to experience this. I have Unity running on all three of the machines that are in the studio right now because they're still on the 1604 uh, LTS install when we started the show, and I haven't upgraded them because, again, uh, you know there are there are certain issues with other desktop environments that 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 Unity just got right. Uh, the the thing that keeps me from doing it here in the studio is audio. I think that all of this stuff would work. Uh, as far as the, you know, all of the, the go-to show bits, but audio has always been a pain in KDE. I can, it doesn't matter, seem to matter how many times I tell it what the default desktop device is. Somehow KDE s redirects one browser tab or one window to something else. And I like that kind of granularity. I like that kind of modular thinking when, when I'm trying to say, Hey, I want to take this particular tab and I want it to play on this set of speakers, or I want to send those to my headphones. I like it then. But in a studio environment, I just need to set it and leave it alone. It needs to be simple and it needs to work. And Unity does that and has done that. And so if we can get a desktop distribution that has a base of Ubuntu and the Lamari desktop, and that can just be, you know, Ubuntu Lamari, this would be fantastic. And it seems like this is the this is uh, this is becoming a reality with this name change. So I'm excited to to, to support these guys. I'm 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 excited to see what uh, where they're going to go with this. Um, I just, I couldn't be happier. I think this is great. Again, open phones, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624, the email. Live at asknoahshow.com. That is the way to make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Daniel writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I love the show, and I watched the episode about Firefox's DNS over HTTPS, and I was wondering what your opinions were regarding routing DNS over the Tor network. I have, I have this set up on a Raspberry Pi at home, and any DNS queries made by a device that does not get rejected by the Pi hole get routed through the Tor network. The delay of going through the Tor is barely noticeable since only DNS goes through Tor, not the web traffic. I use this setup with OpenVPN to reduce the amount of tracking on my mobile devices as well. I have two questions with the setup. Are my DNS queries anonymized and encrypted since they're, on since they're only going through the Tor network? Do you see any potential security issues with this method? Thanks in advance. Regards, Danny. So first of all, this is brilliant. I love this. I love people who do stuff like this. I love people who take the time to think about stuff like this. Yes, I don't see any glaring problems. Here is the issue with, with Tor. Uh, the issue with Tor is there have been a number of cases in which the federal government has gone to prosecute someone and they compromised, the, the person was using the Tor network and they were found by the federal government. 
And the federal government refuses to testify in open court the exact nature in which they were able to compromise uh, Tor users, supposedly. So that leads us down one of two paths. Either there are some there are some exploits in Tor, and to the best of my research and the best of my understanding, the the easiest way to exploit Tor is not the Tor network itself, but the Firefox browser bundle that that they ship Tor with. Uh, but but I have I have nothing I have nothing to substantiate that claim other than uh, people's other people's speculation that know more about it than I do. Um, and so based on that, what I would have to tell you is that if you trust Tor to be secure and you're using a secure way to get your packets back to your house and you're sending those DNS queries uh, uh, through Tor, then yes, th uh, that should be a perfectly secure solution. Um, if I'm wrong or if these uh, the way that the that that the federal government is prosecuting these people, if this exploit is more widely known or is able to be exploited by other people, um, then you may have an issue. Uh, and so the real answer here to me is not is is to continue to push forward with DNS over HTTPS and, and, and encrypted DNS queries. Um, that is going to reduce the complexity of what what we're trying to do. And also, it's fairly trivial to encrypt a DNS inquiry. It's fairly not trivial to encrypt a bunch of packets that are transferring data and then shuffle those packets around the internet and then send them out one exit node and then get the reverse to happen and not screw anything up in the process. There's a lot more going on there. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I like the way that you're thinking about this problem. I think that you're probably safer than most. I think like most threat vectors, it really comes down to who, who is the lowest hanging fruit and you're decidedly not the lowest hanging fruit. I think it's interesting that you're using, you're doing this even over your mobile device to reduce mobile tracking. I think that's fantastic. It's one of the things I kind of gave up on trying to solve because I, you know, you think about it for a second. Well, I don't have access to my own internet everywhere. I'm going to have to use LTE at some point. So unless I'm going to leave a VPN connected to my home the entire time, I, I just wasn't sure how to go about that. Looks like it's possible and in some cases uh, applicable to, to leave your phone connected to your home VPN the whole time. That's pretty cool. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Gra I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Grami writes in and says, hello, I have a server with four drives in addition to the OS drive. Two pairs are mirrored disks via ZFS. I plan on buying a USB drive big enough to back up both of these. What are my options to copy them both to the USB drive? I was planning on R-syncing, but I've heard ZFS. I've heard of ZFS send. What's the right way to get it done? Thanks, Grami. Well, first I want to talk about, uh, just for a second, I want to address the purchasing drives. When you're purchasing drives, I always recommend that you purchase the hard drive and the USB enclosure separately. Here's why. I have had numerous clients that have had uh, data that they, we couldn't recover for them, not because there was probably anything wrong with the disk itself, but because the controller, the drive in the, the, the controller that's attached to the drive fails. Now, in older hard drives, in, in, the, in the older Western Digitals, you could just take a hammer or a screwdriver if, and either crack the glue or uh, loosen the screws and pull the chassis apart, and inside would just be a regular hard drive. You'd unplug it, plug it into a regular you know, IC dock or whatever, and you'd be able to pull your data back off. It was no problem. Now, though, I have had 
in an alarming amount of drives that have come back into the shop and we pull them apart only to find out that the this the controller is actually soldered into the the drive there's no sata connector there's uh there's nothing there that you can pull out and so you'd either have to you either have to desolder uh, their thing and then solder on your own SATA connector, which is uh, that would be a beast for most people and certainly we're not going to get into that um, or uh, You do what I do which is purchase a drive separately purchase a USB enclosure separately and then combine the two Here's the other thing it does It allows you to get some uh, input on what kind of drive you want you can purchase a, a, a WD red for NAS drives you can in and or a WD black if you're if it's just like a, a desktop style drive you have some input into what kind of drive and what kind of features you want in that drive and you get some input on what kind of features you want into the enclosure but it also enables you to take that drive out and put it into a dedicated nas if you ever get to that point where you say oh, i don't want to connect it over usb i want the faster write speeds i want the faster transfer speeds my data is getting too big i want to be able to have that all in one contained unit if you have a a separate hard drive you just open the chassis up and throw it in the drive um DeLuca asks in the chat room, I have some WD where the controller is in the case has some encryption built into it as well. So if you pull the drive out, it's encrypted by the controller in the Western digital case. Now I have two reactions to that. The first is another reason to go with what I'm telling you to do. But the second thing is that's really cool that they're that they they're actually encrypting at the case level. That's pretty fantastic that Western Digital is taking that step to to help protect users. Somebody smashes and grabs the drive, I assume there's some sort of password that's required to get past that encryption. So that's kind of cool. Or at least it opens up the capability of it hardware-wise later on. Uh, to answer your direct question, what way is better, R-Syncing or ZFS Send? Here's the, here's the right answer to that question. The method that you understand. Is ZFS Send a more sophisticated technology and will enable you to do some more advanced things? Yes. Is it something that you should? I encourage you to experiment with and play with? Yes. Is it, should you use it if you don't understand how it works? Absolutely not. I would tell you to highlight all of the folders and control C and open up another window and and go into the folder that you want to back up and control V and watch them copy and then you know maybe run a couple of syncs in the terminal just to cover your bases uh, and and then and then unmount those drives and, and and call it a day. I would rather you do that and it will take longer and it's not efficient and it doesn't do deep duplication and all that stuff. I would rather you do that and understand this is my source copy of my data. This is my destination copy of my data, and they are the same. And when I go to rebackup, I go ahead and delete the destination and start all over, or I, I have a process, you know, whatever the process you develop that you understand, that's what you follow. Now, if you're asking for what the technically superior solution is, um, ZFS Send is a more advanced tool. Uh, R-Sync is great if you were going between uh, platforms. So if you didn't want ZFS on both ends, which is certainly the case in at, at UltraSpeed, we aren't always backing up to the same kind of system that we're, we're coming from. Uh, sometimes we're coming from a hardware RAID situation where it's uh, where there is no ZFS, and we're, of course, coming to all of our stuff is ZFS on the storage stuff is ZFS on the back end. Um, but so R-Sync is a great tool in that example. Uh, R-Sync has been used and is still the default uh, backup script that we use at AltaSpeed. It has been for a long time, probably will continue to be for a long time. Uh, it's just a very universal tool. And you're, you will be hard-pressed to find something that you want to do that R-Sync isn't capable of. Um, there's pretty much a flag for just about everything out there. That said, uh, there are some really cool companies that uh, are using ZFS Send to host backup solutions. 
And the reason that they're using ZFS Send is, because, well, first, because of the nature of ZFS and the reliability that you get off of that, but also because of the powerful nature of ZFS Send. So I would, I would tell you, don't play with it in production. Set it up on a test box. Play with it a little bit. Send, take a small amount of data and play with it for a month and send some data back and forth and see how it works and understand how it works. Uh, if you have questions, write back in and I'll try and answer them for you. Um, but don't put, don't put anything to include rsync into production unless you understand it soup to nuts. And that goes for anything that you're going to host your data on. 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Just a couple of moments left in the hour. Get your call in if you'd like to. We're going to be at scale. That's coming up Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, now, I'm not doing a live show. I'm interested if if there's ever anybody interested in having us come out there and do a live show from the show floor, I'd be happy to do that. What we found in, uh, in our statistical analysis is that... Uh, there weren't, there wasn't a lot of interest in it other than when we just left the live stream going and people could come and hang out and ask questions and, and kind of see people stop by the booth. Um, but I primarily go because I want to meet with other people. And so I'm, uh, William and I are both going to be there. Uh, we're going to be hanging out, walking around the show floor. Um, we will host a get together. And so, uh, details will be found in the show notes for this episode. Uh, although they won't be there until later in the week when we have all the links and stuff like that, uh, uh set up and ready to go. Um, and so I'll, I'll have them in there, but uh, come back and check the show notes for this week. Get the link for the get together and we'll meet up and have dinner and hang out. I think it'll be a good time. Uh, if you will be walking around the show floor, if there's anybody attending scale that you would like to hear from, I fully intend on catching up with the folks from Ubico. They have a lot of they have some cool stuff that's come out this year that I want to talk to them about. Um, they had the first biometric YubiKey that they've ever released and that's available. And of course I want to ask them about that and how it works. Um, I also want to hear how the latest U2F standard is going and how password logins are coming along. And these are some people that we've interviewed in the past. They're very, very interesting to talk to. They really know their stuff. They're true open source geeks. So I'll be excited to get them back on the program. If there's anybody else that you see that's attending scale, would you please send me an email to live at asknoahshow.com, live at asknoahshow.com and let me know, hey, this is something I would be interested in. These are people I would be interested in hearing from. If you have any specific questions for people, let me know. If you're going to be at scale and would like to meet up and, and go out to have dinner or hang out with us, uh, you can also send me an email live at asknoahshow.com and I'll either redirect you to the, the, the get together page when we get that uh, uh, situated and finalized. Uh, or if you want, uh, if you want some one-on-one -on -one time, if you have a question or you want to hang out or you just want to hack on something, uh, let me know because that's, uh, that's what I'm there for. I'm coming to hang out with people and, and just kind of enjoy myself. We'll meet up with system 76. Uh, we'll chat with Emma and see what, uh, I, I, I know they have a, a new lineup of, uh, of colors coming to their system. So this is pretty cool. And, uh, and of course we get all those details and, and get them on the show and, uh, and invite some people from scale that we meet up with back onto the show for later interviews. And so I think it'll be a good time. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, if you're interested, please head over to Pasadena, California and, and come meet up with us. We're going to be playing with Linux. We're going to be chatting about Linux. We're going to be having a good time. I think the last time William and I uh, sat in a coffee shop for like five hours with two YubiKeys, uh, configuring them in every different way that we could think how. We put GPG encryption we or GPG uh, SSH and uh, then we did it with PKCS11 and, 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 and we got to play with the new Type-C one that they came out with. Oh, I can't wait. I just can't wait. 
Hey, if you want more information, we never get through all of the stuff in this show. There's always more articles we haven't gotten to. We link them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can head over there and get the latest show notes. Also, head over to wiki.linuxdelta.com. People are submitting how-tos. They're submitting guides. I'm dumping all of the resources that I have for the show, slowly migrating it over there. Check it out. It's a great site. Also, linuxdelta.com. Leave your distro for, or leave your review for your favorite distro. We'll see you next week after scale.